it does bother me a little, if I'm going to be honest. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, I I argue with people sometimes. They're like, the A1 is the best ski ever made. And I'm like, yeah, I don't even really like it. And they and I laugh. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, you guys made it. I'm like, yeah, but it's we've made way better stuff now. And I'm like, literally having a conversation with people where they're so amped on the ski and I'm trying to talk them out of it. Yet we're the ones that made it. You know, it's funny, funny conversation. Hello, hello, and welcome back or welcome to the Waterski Podcast. This is Matteo Luzzeri, your host. And the goal of this podcast is always to promote the fantastic sport of water skiing. The sport that I love, the sport that I wish I could do today. Um, we are currently experiencing below freezing temperatures in San Gervasio with uh, a thick fog that didn't leave at least uh, for the last two days and a brilliant temperature of one Celsius. Yeah, it's cold. We're in the off season. Um, time to accept it and to put the boat out of the water, let's say. Um, now speaking of off season, I spent the last three or four days editing this episode, which is episode 95, the first of my two part interview with Dave Winninger. Now, Dave is a deep thinker of the sport. I think that's fair to say, uh, and I'm glad that I've had others over the last uh, 95 episodes here, uh, but I've been waiting to interview Dave because obviously due uh, to his role at HO, he has already spoken a lot about his job and about what he believes uh, in terms of ski design, um, in terms of uh, the history of HO, at least the, the, the history he has been involved with. So I was a little hesitant. I, I didn't feel like I wanted to jump... Uh, into it like last year or two years ago. I wanted to take my time, uh, make sure he had a good chunk of time uh, to do this. As you notice, these interviews are pretty long, so they are a demand on the guest. And uh, I certainly am happy that I waited for this long and that we got to do this. Now we recorded, I believe a month ago, and um, there were some issues with his microphone and really I couldn't notice them only after I started post-production so took a little second but I think the episode is um, the sound is is good and of course the content is 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 brilliant Um, in this part one Dave talks about uh, his history into the sport and uh, the series of circumstances and life decisions that uh, landed him the job at HO. Now, he speaks also about the early days at the company, um, a company that was going through a transition period and how he had to basically first sort of invent his job and then reinvent his job uh, and how he uh, faced that, let's say. So very stoked about releasing this part one. I know I haven't published in a couple of weeks, which is why episode two will come out tomorrow, right away. Um, So if you get to listen to this in the next 24 hours, uh, you'll receive the part two right away. If you get to these uh, in two or three days, well, you'll get, you're in for a long (laughs) uh, listening journey. So I want to take the opportunity to thank all of you who listen to this podcast, who send me messages, uh, just know that it's all uh, very encouraging. I love to do this. I want to continue to do it for a while. And uh, so just know that your, your support and your messages, your emails, they, 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 they really hit the spot. Um, and of course, I want to thank Dave for... Uh, taking the time to be uh, with me and to be uh, present and honest in this in this interview. So without further ado, uh, I'll shut up and I'll let you listen to the first part of my interview with Dave. Enjoy. 
Dave, Dave, here we are. Waterski Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to record this with me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it and looking to a good conversation. Yep. Well, um, I don't know if you have heard any of these podcasts, but I generally have a question that I ask to every single uh, guest. Okay. Which is, uh, how'd you get into water skiing? Oh, well, I, I, I grew up in Michigan, uh, outside Detroit, and um, my parents were both school teachers. And we had a, a lake house in northern Michigan on a lake, and uh, we spent our summers up there. You know, school teachers have the summer off. And so we lived at the lake house for about three months every summer. And my family always water skied. We didn't competitively water ski. We didn't have a slalom course or even really know what that was. But uh, my grandpa skied, my mom, dad both skied. My uncle was kind of into barefooting. Real, you know, looking back now, very recreationally, you know, um, not nothing advanced. Yeah. But we were skiers. And so um, I always loved to ski. And then I had a, a neighbor who lived down the road, um, and he was on the Michigan State water ski team. His name was Kip Knight. He was an older guy at the time. He was probably in his 20s, but I was like 12 or, you know, maybe no, maybe like 8 or 10. And he would slalom down in front of my house. No course, just free skiing. And he had a jet boat. Didn't even have a ski boat. But um, he could link turns. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Like, I would go out to the end of the dock, and I'd watch him, and throwing the huge spray and S turning back and forth. And finally, like we had like a neighborhood gathering where we had a pancake breakfast and I like sat next to him at the pancake breakfast and was like, Hey, would you take me water skiing? And he's like, yeah, which was pretty cool. I mean, cause he probably was in his twenties, you know, he's probably out partying and chasing girls right. and stuff. And here's this like a little kid. He's like, could you take me skiing? And he did. And I had to get up like whatever, seven in the morning and in Michigan in the summer, it was cold in the mornings, you know, it was like 50, 52, like steam rising off the lake. Anyway, he took me skiing and he taught me how to stand on the ski, get your hips up. He taught me how to kind of S, you know, slalom really go back and forth, free skiing. And we did that for a couple of years, just him and I and his, his, uh, family. And then eventually my, my parents got a ski boat and then they put a slalom course in on my lake and that's when we just got hooked because once we got a slalom course we could ski every day we ski morning and night and i got good real quick because i was in a, i was like an early teenager at that point and i think anytime you have success uh especially at that age you get confident and you really fall in love with it so i was hooked so i wasn't like a really hooked water skier at a young age like a will asher who grew up in a man-made ski lake but I've always been a skier, and I think I was just at that sweet spot in age where I really got hooked at the right time. So that's kind of what started yeah. my whole career, and it just went yeah, from that's there. Cool, you know. So yeah, yeah. Typical uh, passion from family, but like pure passion. There was no competition, no you know like competitive aspect in mind at first. It was you spend the time there, you were doing this thing, and then you got inspired watching something you didn't quite understand how could be possible. Totally. Yeah. It wasn't a competitive thing at all for me. Um, to be, it sounds funny now that I can say as I'm older, but I think it was actually like a being outside thing. So one, you saw the skier skiing well and it was intriguing, but then once you start to get up at six in the morning or six 30 in the morning and you go out on this beautiful lake in Northern Michigan and there's like steam rising off the water. And our lake was unique. It was about four miles wide, three miles across. It was a big lake, but about a third of the lake was not developed. And eventually we, our slalom course was like on the non-developed side through the cattails and it was beautiful. And like when you're young, you don't really care about that, but it was imprinted on me. So now as I'm older and you know, maybe not at the end of my competitive career, but like definitely getting 25 years into competitive skiing. It's like, I do look back and think, wow, that was a beautiful place to ski. Like I'm almost as interested in the beauty of where you ski as the ultimate score, you know? So it, mm -hmm. it was a nice, it was a nice, it was a really ideal setup for a kid to learn to ski, you know? It was neat. Yeah. So yeah. now this this, however, was relegated in the summer months. Like you had a house on the lake and you were skiing. 
Like at that age, were you playing other sports? Were you interested in athletics at school or was it skiing in the summer? Well, I think my first love and first sport was really snow skiing. Um, My parents were both snow skiers. Uh, Once again, it wasn't like exceptionally great snow skiers, uh, weren't ski racers per se, but we went skiing and we went as a family and we went every weekend in the winter and we went at least one day uh, a week after work because they took the ski club. So since Mm -hmm. I, before I can remember, I've been a snow skier and I love snow skiing. And it's like I said, it's my first love. So also was a, you know, looking back, pretty good soccer player. Um, I paid, I started playing soccer at five. I paid all the way through high school. I, you know, people say this stuff, but I probably could have played in college, not a D1 school, but maybe D2 or D3. I had a lot of friends who went on and played D3 soccer. One of my good friends went on and played at Indiana and ended up playing professional soccer. And he was much better than me, but I mean, we were, you know, we were soccer players. So those were, and I always played, even when I got older and got pretty good at water skiing, I always played soccer. And I think it really helped my skiing actually, because I stayed light, I stayed fit, and um, yeah, I think running's pretty good for your water skiing, especially nowadays. You know, you don't want to be 200 pounds, and I never got that big because, yeah, I played soccer. Soccer players aren't that big, you know, but I got strong legs, and yeah, so I, I would say I've always been a good athlete. I'm not a great athlete. I was never like a, you know, a destined to be a pro athlete in any sport I chose, but good enough, you know, good enough to be a yeah. good athlete for sure. Passionate? Loved it. When I was young, my mom was an artist and we did a lot of art projects and I was pretty good artist. But as I got a little older, a lot of that energy went into athletics. I don't know. It wasn't calculated. Mm-hmm. So I'm passionate, yeah. you know, um, don't know why I thought, I thought about the other day. I was like, man, I should probably pick up art again, but I just still interested in athletics at this point in my life. I really enjoy it even to the day, you know, getting out and running in the woods or, paddling or mountain biking or skiing like I, I i dig it i try and do it every day you know for sure yeah yeah and and you also are in an, in the era in an era of the united states which i always think of as very much like outdoorsy activity always something to do like there's surf even though it's cold there's woods there you know there's a lot of things to do there yeah um, i think that's probably why i ended up here obviously i ended up here also to work at ho but it's been a good fit and yeah, you never get bored and there's tons of stuff to do. You can get out every day. I think it's a beautiful way to live. You know, every, if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, like how do you want to spend each day? And I want to get outside every day and I love to ski, water ski. And I do that most days I can, but if I can't, then I'd either ride my bike or snow ski in the winter, try and surf. I'm not very good, but I love to try, um, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get back to the story. You are now like with the course on this lake in Michigan, like when did the idea of like maybe doing a tournament or a competition come into play? Was it the guy that exposed you to S like turn, doing turns or? No, not really. Um, two things really happened to me. Um, one, uh, another friend, Paul Larson, who's become a lifelong friend. He was really the guy who put the slalom course into my lake and he, I started to water ski with him a little bit when my buddy Kip wasn't around and, and Paul lived outside Detroit where my main house was, not my lake house. And he's like, Hey, I'm members at a private ski lake. And he's like, um, you should come down and ski at the lake and do a tournament. And, uh, it wasn't looking back. It wasn't a great ski lake by the stand, not like Mateo, like your lake or a lake that I ski at now hilltop. It was a gravel pit with an eight buoy course. But to me, it was like insane because there was just one boat. It was small and this lake was real small. I don't remember how long it was, but I mean, it was like barely could fit the course in at 36, but it had good wind protection and everything. So I ended up doing a tournament there. I have no idea how I did. Can't remember. I made a couple passes, which is pretty good, you know? And then, um, I ended up becoming a member there. So, um, we would be up North all summer, but when we went back to school, in the fall and in the spring, we would ski there. So now we're starting to ski more. Um, but the big thing that changed it all for me was my, my, we were, my mom was very close with her sister, my aunt and uncle, and they moved to Florida and we would go down there and visit them on holidays, usually Easter holiday or, or winter break, things like that. And 
I had water ski magazine and I would look in the back cause now I'm a skier, I'm into it. And I wanted to go to a ski school. And I think we went to McCormick's once, but it wasn't a great fit. And then for whatever reason, we chose um, Carl Robert's ski school. So my parents took me over there and we skied, I skied with Carl for the day and I had a blast. And I never forget it because the day I went there, um, that all the boys were jumping. And at that time, I think maybe 10 guys had jumped 200 feet. And I think six of them were there. And I did yeah. my slalom and I sat on the dock with, I don't even know if my mom and dad stayed. I think they dropped me off. And I watched these dudes jump 200 feet, like a bunch of them. I didn't really know at the time, like if the world record, I don't remember what the world record was. Sammy probably had the record, but you know, I didn't know dudes jumped 200 feet in practice. I didn't really even know what that was, you know, and Carl was jumping and Stefan Veeld was jumping. I'm pretty sure Bruce Neville was there that day. Um, I know Swanson was there and Clooney and I can't remember who else, but it was unreal. It blew my mind. So then right then and there, I'm like, Oh, I want to be a jumper, you know? Cause once again, right. I was at that sweet spot age where, um, you know, I was just really influenced. So I didn't actually jump that day, but I asked my mom and dad and said, Hey, can I come back when we go to Florida at Easter? And so when I went and when we came back at Easter, I think I went for three days and I learned how to jump and I learned to slalom pretty good. And then it just started the cycle where every time we went to Florida and we were going to Florida quite a bit, I would go to Robert's and I would get, and Carl was super cool to me. Like, he's like, man, you're really good at this. Like you're getting the hang of it. And so I would stay for three days and then eventually it became five days. And then eventually as I get a little older, it was like, why don't you come down for four weeks every spring when you get out of school and you can work here, like chopping palm trees and ski for virtually free. Um, yeah, and that's when I got really hooked I got pretty good at slalom and I got pretty good at jumping and I really yep. couldn't have done it without Carl and my parents really, you know, so that changed my life really. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's teenager years. Yeah. You're going to school. You're trying to, you know, like juggle the, the skiing thing. Yeah. Uh, are you by now competing like uh, yeah. traditional states, regionals, uh, nationals, that yeah. type of thing? I think the first time I really, yeah, I was competing. I think I didn't really compete till I was like age 15, maybe. I'm trying to remember. I was trying to remember before the podcast, but um, yeah, I started off with local tournaments, you know, started doing the state tournaments, um, regionals. And then, yeah, in the, in the mid nineties, started going to the nationals. That was pretty eye opening. Um, you know, I just wasn't even close when I started going to nationals and beginning score wise. But I was like, you know, I think I could do this. And so eventually, you know, years later, I ended up winning some nationals as an amateur. But, um, but I do remember going to the nationals and just people were like two or three passes better in slalom. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was right. just like, wow, this is a different world. Um, because in Michigan, I was pretty good, you know, like weren't a ton of great skiers, but when I started going to the nationals, you know, you're skiing against like Chris Rossi and stuff like that, who are running into 39 and you're like maybe running 32. You're like, dude, this is a different world. So right. yeah, it was good. I, I love how you, you know, that didn't. I mean, from the sound of it, that, that didn't scare you. It sounds like it motivated you, but it gave you like a fair comfort, confidence of like, yeah, I, I can see it. So almost like these dudes are doing it. It's possible. Why is it not possible for me? Yeah. I mean, I always, even when I remember skiing on my lake as a kid, like I was learning the slalom course, I remember thinking, like one of the first times I ever skied the course, you know, and I was only skiing at like 15 off or maybe dude, honestly, maybe I was skiing at 75 feet of rope. Cause we didn't even know what we were doing. Right. Um, I remember thinking I can do this. Like, I don't know where it came from. I just thought like, well, I, this feels good. Like I, I think I could figure this out, which is totally irrational because I'm on a 75 foot rope with my dad driving at a lake in Northern Michigan. And we have no clue what we're doing. But in my kid mind, I was like, I, was just, I, I like this. I could do this. Mm -hmm. Who knows why? Um, so, yeah, I guess I was, I never thought of myself as confident, but I guess in that way I was. I wasn't super, I'd always get nervous. Obviously, I'm a human, so I'd be nervous to ski with the nationals or ski with Robert's. But I didn't let the nerves push me away. 
Like I would push into the nerves, you know, I'm like, okay, well I'm uncomfortable, but I want to do this. So I'm going to keep pushing it. You know what I mean? Keep trying, try and slow better, try and jump better, ski with better people. Um, I don't know. It wasn't calculated, but that's what I guess looking back, that's what I did. So yeah. 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 Like yeah. A, a traditional yeah. pursuit, like I would say, you know, like to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. Yes, very much. I guess I'm like that a little bit. Keep pushing it. Yeah. You know, I would say and not to keep harping on that, but it's like, I remember jumping at the state championships and there's a kid who's a much better jumper than me. Rocky roar was his name. I think he could jump like one fifteen, and I can only jump 90 and he, he beat me. And, and then the next year, I think I jumped one ten, and he jumped one fifteen. and the next year I would jump one thirty, and he jumped one fifteen. and the next year I jumped one fifty, and he jumped one fifteen. and nothing against Rocky. I mean, he's awesome dude, but I just was pushing, you know, I was hungry. I wanted to keep improving. That was what interested me in skiing. So, mm -hmm. and still does, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, of <laughs> course. Know? So, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, it might be too early in our interview to ponder on this, but like, what was it? Was it like the, what you saw on the magazine, just the, the sheer will of like being better at this, this sport? Like, what was it that gave you that thirst? I think it was two things. And like I said, when I was a kid, I didn't look, I don't know, but looking back, if I had to analyze, I'd say it's two things. One, I think I always just really liked the skiing part of it. And what I mean by that is like, I remember reading Lance Armstrong's book years ago and he said after cancer, he's like, he kind of really just liked riding the bike. You know what I mean? Like just being on the bike. And I think for me, I just really like riding the ski. I like just the physical aspect of riding the slalom ski, yep. the feel of the water, the speed, the, the feeling through the back, the turn, the acceleration. I, I just enjoy that. I, I really, even after all these sets, it's my favorite part of skiing. The scores. Yeah, they're great. The winds, they're great, but I'd like the skiing. Yeah. That was a lot of it. I always have. I'd ski every day if I could, you know? Uh, and then also I think, being around Robert's, seeing these professional athletes, um, doing this just radical stuff, running 39 and jumping 200 feet and just the way they were, it was just like inspiring. It was like, man, that is a sick way to live. Mm -hmm. What a cool lifestyle. They were cool dudes. Carl Robert's is, was a, is a cool dude. Yeah. Wade Cox is a cool dude. Like they're fun as hell to hang out with. They're rock stars in their sport and they inspire people. You know, uh, and they, and they had a huge impact on me. I was like, like I said, I was at that sweet spot where I was very influenced. Thank God it was them and not like other, you know, yeah. other bad influences, you know? So yeah, I think yeah. that's the combination Yeah, that hooked me. And, and so you care, you have this sort of like huge passion in your teens and then you end up to university. So I guess the first question is, was was there any consideration like nowadays of like university and skiing together or just pure academics? Like what was the shift for you? Yeah, I kind of made a, you know, I said I had this huge passion for water skiing, but then I kind of made a weird choice because I did go to university of Colorado, which is in Boulder, Colorado, which is not where you would typically go to be a water skier. You would right. go to a Louisiana or maybe Florida. Um, you know, I don't, I don't even know. I don't know if I was good enough to get a scholarship to ski in college. You know, uh, maybe looking back, I probably was. I, Mateo, you know more about how you get those than I do, but it wasn't really on my radar. Um, I had a, a good friend, Sean Milford, and his older brother had gone to University of Colorado, and we had gone and visited many times, and I just thought it was a really cool place to go. Um, and I was, like I said, I've always been a lifelong snow skier and moving to Colorado to the mountains, you know, it's one of the better places to ski in America, but I also didn't abandon water skiing. I was still very committed to water skiing and, um, Jill Knutson of all people who I'd met skiing at Roberge's, uh, when I was in high school was from Colorado. And I had told her, I said, had thinking about going to university of Colorado Boulder. She's like, Oh, I grew up there. I know some people who water ski there. And she gave me the number of a guy named Randy Hawking. And he had a lake called Laku landing in Windsor, Colorado. And I reached out to him 
and maybe even met him at the Nationals that year in Bakersfield or something. And my parents and I drove out to college, and we stopped at the ski lake, actually, before we went to CU Boulder. It was on the way. And I, I skied a set, and they're like, hey, you can ski here um, in the spring and fall. So in a way, um, I had a ski site. So I got real lucky. I, I went to University of Colorado, which is a really good school. I got to play in the mountains in the winter. And I had a beautiful place, Laku Landing, to water ski in the spring and the fall. And to me, I was happy with that because I had never been a year-round snow, a water skier. I never mm-hmm. experienced that. So this was as good a setup as I've ever had. It was a beautiful two-lake man-made complex. At CU was a great school, and you had the mountains. So I was like, man, I nailed it. You know, I was kind yeah. of dumb luck. Or looking back, fortunate because of my parents, really. But, um, you know, also, it all worked out. So yeah. yeah, and 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 at the time we didn't have a collegiate water ski team in University of Colorado, but we had some really good skiers there. Uh, Mandy Nightingale went there. I don't right. really remember anyone knows that. Uh, she was there. There was a skier, uh, Oliver Loeffler. I don't know if anyone remembers him. Oliver was a really good jumper, better jumper than I was. Uh, we had myself. We had uh, Kurt Hines. Um, I remember Kurt. I mean, he. I think he's run thirty nine. He was years ago now, but. We probably could have had a decent team. We wouldn't have messed with you guys in Louisiana, but we could have had a legit team maybe, but we never got our act together. We never got anything formalized, but we used to ski together a little. And then my good friend, Brian Rinke, he was a high school kid then. He lived nearby, and, we, and he's, he went on to be a great skier as well. He went to ASU, skied on a scholarship. So we had a good crew of skiers there, really. That's cool. So, you you know, like you were still able to ski, but it sounds like University of Colorado was the choice that had nothing to do with skiing. Like skiing happened to be there. Yeah, kind of. Looking back, it yeah. sounds weird, but um, I was still very committed to skiing. I, I was an engineering major, and I would work hard and you know do my studies. And I went. I would ski almost every day. Like I would get out after school, drive to the lake. It wasn't real close, maybe like an hour, and I water ski as much as I could. So it wasn't like I went to school and I put water skiing on the back burner. And at least not in my eyes. In Will Asher's eyes, probably, right? Because he's like, right. oh, you're not committed enough. But in my eyes, I was like, I was doing school and I was water skiing as much as I could. So I definitely was committed. I just yeah. happened to be taking the winter off, you know? So mm-hmm. yeah, 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 no. But I think it's, trust me when I say that I'm not uh, reflecting on this in a, how can I say in a in a, in a critical or like you're not committed to skiing sense? Yeah, it's more you know to to understand what happened for you after college. That you know, I, I wanted to understand what led you to Colorado. Right? Oh yeah, um, snow skiing like really. Yeah, snow friends, skiing and snow skiing. friends. Yeah, um, that's it really. Mm-hmm. When you're young, even though I was pretty smart, like I. Your critical thinking is looking back, you're like, man, that was a weird choice. That was a <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense. But at the time, obviously, it made sense to me, right? Because that's what right. I did. So, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how was the, the, the university? Like, did you, did you go straight for engineering? Did you know that's what you wanted to do, like, from the start? I went straight into engineering. Um, like I said, I grew up in Detroit. And, you know... There's a lot of engineers in Detroit because we have all the auto industry, or we used to. <laughs> right. Um, and my high school, I really didn't know what the hell I wanted to do, like most kids, you know. I wasn't. But at my high school, we had a, a program. I forget what it was called now, but it was funded by, I think, Ford Motor Company. And looking back, it was like a engineering primary course. So we had like pneumatics, hydraulics, a little bit of like um, circuits, they call it. Um and we had like design projects and I was pretty good at that stuff. I liked hooking up the hydraulics. I liked doing pneumatic kind of logic, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of like, um, electrical work, stuff like that. And then when we got into doing design projects. We had to design a, like a automated system that like moved widgets around. It had to fit through a door. It used like pneumatic vacuum to hold parts. It had actuators. We had to machine all the parts on on a, on a mill or a lathe, and I was pretty good at it. And so I think, like I said, I guess the story of my life, if you're good at something, then you want to do more of it. So I chose kind of that route over being an English major or something, you know, which I didn't really enjoy as much. 
Um, although my dad, he's an English major, but, um, so yeah, I kind of, when it came time to go to school, um, I chose engineering and, uh, because I liked those kind of projects, you know, I liked the design projects. I was good at math and good at physics, but I wasn't exceptional. I wasn't going to be a mathematician. Uh, I didn't really dig it that much. I was pretty good at physics, came relatively naturally to me, but my strength was in project design and actually a little bit like creativity, which isn't talked a lot about in engineering, but honestly, being creative is a huge part of engineering. Uh, and then, yeah, you got to be able to do the hard work, the math and the physics, but great engineers are usually fairly creative, mm-hmm. you know, and so that, it just fit me well. And that's why I ended up in, in engineering at CU. So, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, um, it's funny because as you explain this, it sounds like where you're at now, it's kind of like the perfect fit of the things you were realizing at the time. Um, what, what were some of your favorite courses? Like what was the stuff that you enjoyed in, in uni? Oh, it's been a while. I got to think back, but, um, it wasn't calculus. I remember that I did take (laughs) calc one, two, three, four. And I believe I started graduate school. I never finished it. I think calc five. So I made it. Didn't never, never loved it though. Um, I had a, I had a course, my favorite course ever. I can't remember if it was in my undergrad or the beginning of my graduate program, uh, was a course in essentially, um, space. I don't know how else to say it. It was like space projects. So like rockets, satellites, things like that. I don't remember the proper name. I know the professor was a really nice, cool guy and he had worked a lot in the industry. I don't know if it was Lockheed Martin or Boeing or NASA or what, but we had a lot of that at CU Boulder. We had a pretty good engineering program. In fact, when I was there, one of the physicists won a Nobel prize. Um, he did on something completely different. Yeah. Pretty interesting. But we definitely had a, an aeronautical or aerospace vibe in our engineering program. And actually I started off as a aeronautical engineer and ended up being a mechanical engineer. And that's a different story. But, um, that was my favorite course. I liked the spacecraft design. That's what it, I think it's what it was called spacecraft design. That was my favorite course. Uh, I also took a course on combustion. So, you know, essentially internal combustion engines and things like that. I really enjoy that as well. I, I'm not a car guy at all, which I, but we learned about how internal combustion engines work and we learned funny enough, my professor, cause in Boulder, the, the professors are pretty hippie, right? Boulder's a pretty hippie right. town, like as hippie as it gets in America almost. And, um, he talked about climate change and global warming and how they're starting to see that these internal combustion engines, the, 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 the results of them are warming the environment. And this is like 2000, 2002. So it's really funny to look back mm-hmm. on it now and go, Oh my God, like these guys were really aware of this that long ago. Yep. Um, to see how big of an impact it is now. But anyway, yeah, those are my two favorite combustion for whatever reason. I just liked it and really spacecraft design, which kind of led me once again, you know, that's kind of what I went into next when I got done with school was not spacecraft design, but I worked at Lockheed Martin on rocket engines. So yeah, it's kind of similar, similar theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was like, that job was like that offer came in the midst of grad school and you dropped out or what, no, what happened? No, it was really there? complicated. Yeah. Um, I was, had an internship at Lockheed Martin and I really just got it as a result of being at CU and being an engineer and having decent grades and doing some interviewing. And so I, uh, in the summer I would work at Lockheed Martin and um, worked on a rocket engine called RD-180, which they use on Atlas V rocket. That's what I worked on. Um, then when I got done with school, um, I took a little time off school and work and my buddy Kurt Hines and I, we went to Europe and snow skied around for a couple months. And then when I got home, I didn't really know what to do like most people. So I ended up going to, I was like, well, I'll go back to school. I'll do the graduate school thing. I did that. And then, then I was like, oh, I really wanted to be a pro water skier. So I went to Florida and spent a year water skiing with Wade Cox. Um, 
but then I kind of, there's, it's hard to make it right. Whatever the hell that means, there's no money. So eventually I'm like, oh, I'll go back to school. So I went back to finish my graduate program and then I got a job offer to work at HO and I didn't really, I was taking loans out for school and I kind of bailed on the graduate program, went to work at HO. So it got kind of messy there in the middle. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the turn of events. So we can drill into so, that if you want, but yeah. I'm happy to. Well, I mean, yeah, like Messi. Yeah. I mean, it sounds yeah. like there's good stories in there because, I mean, in the in that sort of like uh, cloud of dust that you shrugged off pretty quickly in 20 seconds, you ski yeah. the year we wait, Cox. Yeah. Changed my How life. How was that? Yeah. Because, I mean, there was a connection with Carl there, right? Like there were... Oh, yeah, I kind of left or? all that out. Sorry. So for all those you don't know is Carl had this, his parents, you know, his father was a very talented engineer who ended up working for NASA and was heavily involved in the space shuttle. So they moved from California to Florida because that's where all that happens. And they bought a lake um, on the east side of Orlando. And then Carl kind of spent, grew up skiing there. And then Sim, uh, Wade was a really up and coming jumper and slalom skier. And he became a training partner to Carl. Eventually he bought a house on a lake down the road. And anyway, long story short, when I was skiing with Carl, in Florida in high school, I was getting pretty good at slalom skiing. And he said, you know, you should really go slalom with Wade. Uh, Wade is, you know, at the time, I think he was best in the world. There was like that sweet spot a couple years there where actually he was beating Andy. And so, um, I can't remember if Carl would drop me off or Wade would pick me up, but I'd go down a couple miles from Carl's where I was staying to Wade's on Horseshoe Lake and we'd slalom together. And it was Wade, myself, Ronnie Barton and Chris Sullivan. And, um, I would slalom with Wade. And so Wade and I, you know, became friends. And then eventually Carl sold his lake house and property to Wade and Wade kind of continued on with the ski school there. And Trent and I, Trent Finlinson and I, you know, we would spend a couple weeks in the summer at that lake house when Carl had it. I remember talking to Trent being like, dude, are you, are you going to stay on when Wade takes over the place? And he's like, yeah, I think so. So, um, it's funny, all the people who you meet growing up skiing and now we're all still involved, but, um, so right. yeah, when, when Carl sold and actually moved to Washington, not too far from where I live now, small world, Wade took over and we kind of started skiing with Wade. And so I kind of did the same thing I did with Carl, um, with Wade. And then Wade actually, he came to Colorado and we skied together at a place called Greeley. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about maybe coming down and trying to give it a go and, you know, take a year and ski. He's like, yeah, you should come ski with me. I could use a training partner. You can drive the boat. And that's exactly what we did. So I stayed in the house there at his lake. We skied every day he wanted to, and I skied more. And I learned to drive the boat well. I knew how to drive a boat, but I learned to drive the boat well. And I skied with Wade and Chris Rossi almost every day. Um, every day we skied. And, yeah, I got a lot better. I mean, I learned how to do it, how these guys trained. Rossi was really on the cutting edge, like technique. Wade was very open, even though he had already been such a great skier, very open to modern skiing. And yeah, I, I started like running 38 all every day and, you know, taking cracks at 39. And I actually ran 39 in practice sometimes. I think Rossi might've been weaving looking back, but anyway, I started to get better at skiing and have some success and also looking back and open the opportunity to work at HO, which I had no thought of at the time, but, um, that those two relationships gave me the opportunity to get an interview at HO and yeah, without Chris and Wade, I, I wouldn't probably be at HO honestly. So, yeah. So in that year, clearly you improved, like you were skiing consistently a lot year long. You were skiing with two huge names in yeah. the sport already then. One kind of like already established, one kind of getting established. Um, did you did it change beyond your performances and knowledge about how to become a better skier? Did you change did it change anything about I guess your 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 passion for the sport, like how you understood it, the role of it in your life? Like I know it was a year that then you decided to in the unknown, go back and finish grad school. But what did that year do to you beyond scores? Yeah, I think it had a big impact. I mean, I learned a ton about skiing, which really has suited me well for my career now. 
in an, I wouldn't say a negative way, but one thing I learned too is, man, to be as good as these guys, I had a long way to go. You know what I mean? Like, so in a, it was a great opportunity, but it also maybe was like eye-opening. And it's like, dude, this is like, these guys are on another level, you know, and you're not there and you're in your early 20s and you got to make some money, right? Because you need a career. I don't know if you're going to make it, you know what I mean? Like career-wise. Because um, everyone thinks, oh, I'm going to move to Florida and I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to run 39 every time and I'm going to I'm gonna make it like Will did or, you know, Rossi did or Jamie did. Um, but that didn't really happen for me, um, which looking back, I don't know why I expected it to. Um, and I don't think I did expect it to, but maybe I hoped it would, you know, like things would click, yeah. you'd fall into place, figure it out. Rossi would tell me the story that he's like, you know, I, I couldn't run 38. And then within a couple months, I figured out how to run 38 and I figured out how to run 39. Like it came to him that quick. So you always hope, well, shit, maybe I can figure that out, you know? Right. But it didn't you know, for whatever reason. So I think at the end of the year, it's like, man, I'm really happy I did it. I learned a ton. I got better, but I I need a job. Like I'm probably not going to be a pro skier. It was like a wake up call, you know, um, which I probably right. knew, but I wanted to scratch the itch. So after the year, it wasn't yeah. like I was giving up. I just was like, well, I'm going to have to do something else as well. So that's kind of went back to reality, but I never like got depressed. I never quit skiing. I never gave it up because I didn't make it. I, I skied as hard as I could. Actually, I think when I got back, I started, in a way, to ski better because now I was maybe the best skier, you know, and I could work on my skiing. When you ski with Wade and Rossi, those guys, every day, dude, you get your ass kicked every day. It's a little tough. Sometimes you like yeah. it's nice to go home to your lake and be the top dog, you know. But also, if you want to be great, you got to push it, and you got to put yourself in those environments. So, yeah, it was a really eye-opening year and set me on the path I'm now. You know, I'm still on the same path, training, skiing hard, but working, you know, yeah. making a living, being an engineer, and being cool with that. You know, I'm, I'm comfortable with that now. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so let, let, let's give some context. Even though in my interview with Will, Will gave his knowledge and impression of how things changed at HO, uh, like... Can you give a, a context of what was happening at HO, how you got the job, like sure. how was the first few few days? I'll tell you this. I'll tell you a little bit. I'll tell you the story how I got it because it's kind of funny. And so um, I was up snow skiing at Chris Rossi's house in Elta and him and Wade had talked to CJ, who is now the general manager of HO at the time. He was the sales manager. And they said they got me an interview to go to Seattle and interview for a position. And I was like, Oh, cool. You know? And, um, so I remember I had to get up in the morning. Chris has a beautiful home up in the Canyon at Elta. And actually you have to snow ski down to your car to go. So I, I put my suit on, I put my snow pants on and my jacket, I put my skis and boots on. I snow skied down to my car, had to dig my car out of the snow, drove to the Salt Lake city airport, flew to Seattle, did the interview with the president at that time, Tim Joyce, went pretty well, went back to the airport, flew back to Salt Lake, drove up the canyon, put my snow pants on, put my ski boots on, ski toured up the hill, went back to the house. <laughs> and Chris is like, oh, how'd it go? I'm like, yeah, it went pretty good. I think maybe I'll get the job. So I tell people that story. They always laugh. They're like, you went snow skiing to get to your interview. I was like, yeah. So anyway, There's no ski to get an interview at a water ski factory. Water ski company. Company, yeah. Pretty good life, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, the er the early days were very interesting. You know, if everyone doesn't know the backstory, Herb O'Brien, obviously it started O'Brien. He had started HO skis in 1981 or 1982, depending on who you ask. Um, and him and the the current the current owner Bob Archer, I'm not going to get into the details. It's before my time, but they had a falling out, and uh, Herb sold his half of the company to Archer and left, and Herb started a new brand, Radar Ronix, and he took a lot of the people with him. Chris Sullivan went with him. When I interviewed for the job, I was going to work with Eddie Roberts, who knew a ton about snow, uh, water skis. I was going to be more of like, kind of like, an aware, in a way, marketing. But a, a week or two before I, let, I came in, Eddie Roberts quit and went to work with her, which made sense. They're best friends, you know? Yeah. So when I took my role, 
Uh, there was nobody there who really knew how to design water skis or how to machine molds or really do much. Uh, we had a awesome brand name because Herb and his team had built it very well. But internally, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, I think there were obviously the sales reps stay and there's other people in accounting and maybe sales who knew what they were doing. But from a water ski development, design, or even marketing standpoint, it was me. Everybody didn't left. really have anybody else. Everybody left. And so the early days were rough. Even though I, I think my first title was product marketing manager, the boss at the time told me, he's like, you need to go downstairs in the manufacturing facility because we, we used to build all the skis there in Redmond and figure out how to make water skis. And so I really started in manufacturing and just tried to figure out how to keep manufacturing going so we could just keep producing the skis we were making at the time, which was the Monza System 8. Mm -hmm. And then eventually that led into ski design. But in the beginning, it was literally like just making skis, which is probably looking back where you should start. Right. But um, it was unusual for a marketing product marketing guy to be down on the manufacturing floor, you know. So, but uh, and did then that it intrigue just, you? Because, you know, going back to high school and that design engineering class, sounds like you like to be hands-on. I like manufacturing. Manufacturing is underrated. Elon Musk says it well. He's like, dude, manufacturing is the real magic. Design is the easy part. It's pretty easy to make one. It's hard to make 100 or 100,000. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. And I think, unfortunately, in America, manufacturing gets a bad rap and everything goes overseas. But I think the real art is in manufacturing. Now, the, and the manufacturing of water skis at HO was <laughs> quite a bit different than manufacturing of rocket engines at Lockheed Martin. So I was a little blown away, like how sloppy things were compared <laughs> to what I was used to. Yeah. But in the end, either way, there, there was great work being done at Lockheed or HO. I mean, they were really good at what they did. It just was a different. So yes, I was intrigued by manufacturing. I still am. In fact, I think I'm probably more into it now than I ever, but, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how the first days were. And then to keep the story moving, um, Wade actually got a job working at HO too. So at this point he's transitioning, he's still skiing professionally, but he was like a team manager as well. So it was a good opportunity for Wade and I kind of out of the ashes. We got opportunities to try stuff and he signed Chris Parrish maybe a month after I started. And I owe a lot to Chris, uh, and I, I kind of live with a little bit of guilt with the Parrish thing as well. Is that we signed Chris, and he had just come off his 2005 season, which was phenomenal. phenomenal. I mean, he dominated. Um, but I think the, the O'Brien, the ski molds that he had at O'Brien were wearing out. And Anyway, long story short, he, he needed a new opportunity. So he came to HO, and long story short, about a month or two after he signed with us, he's like, called me. He's like, I, dude, I can't ski on the Monza. And I, I didn't even understand. I'm like, how could the best skier in the world sign for a ski company if he didn't, couldn't ski on the ski? And why, why would he do that? Like, didn't he know? And, um, yeah, I don't know what happened there, but anyway, he couldn't ride the ski. And he's like, look, you need, I've been working with this guy, Bob LaPointe. I'm like, yeah, I know Bob LaPointe. I'm like, and he's like, um, I had his poster on my wall as a kid. Right. You know? Right, right. So, uh, he's like, Bob helps me with my skis. Uh, can he and I come up to the factory and he's going to make me some skis. I was like, sure, you know, come on. So he came, Bob came to the factory. I didn't really know what work on skis meant, but really he, he wanted like make the flex different. And so he would cut out some pieces of carbon. He'd put in Chris's skis and make it stiffer in certain areas. Obviously Chris is a big guy. And I spent a couple days with Bob and by the end of the trip, Parrish is like, look, you got, you got to sign Bob. You, you, you guys need the point helping you. Cause you guys don't know what you're doing. I, I don't know if Parrish said that or Bob said that, but somehow out of that meeting of the minds, um, it was, became very clear to me that we needed a guy like Bob LaPointe because we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And so I had to go to my boss who had just hired me a couple months ago and say, hey, we really need to hire this guy, Bob LaPointe, because we don't know what the hell we're doing. What's looking <laughs> back is crazy, right? right. Um, because he's probably like, dude, what I hire you to do? But also, I have to hand it to myself, probably was the best move I ever made to realize, like, 
dude, I don't know what we're doing. And we need to get a guy who does. And because of Parrish and Parrish convincing me and me convincing my boss, Tim Joyce, we hired Bob as a contractor to help us make Parrish's skis in the beginning. It grew into helping with other athlete skis like Will and ultimately teaching me ski design and ski manufacturing and tricks of the trade that him and his brother had developed. And we still work with Bob to this day. So I was like 15 or 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. So HO, we would not be where we are without Bob. He really saved our ass. And this, yeah, Will and I, everything we know we've learned from Bob or with Bob trial and error, you know, through the years. Yeah. So it's been pretty cool, pretty, pretty special to, to do that with Bob. Now, the, the, the story makes a lot of sense um, chronologically, right? So you're sure. there, you, you basically have to figure out to keep doing what the company was doing before you showed up. Yeah. And then you get Chris, Bob shows up, Bob is this like super knowledgeable guy. And even though if nobody said it, someone like, I guess with his eyes open would see that oh my god we are we we don't have a guidance here we could use this you know this knowledge. Um, yeah. This story has been said elsewhere, but I'm curious to hear your experience of working with Bob, observing Bob working, like the type of questions you had for him. Like, what was the the instrumental part at the beginning for you? Well, I think the thing when you first work with Bob that's very obvious is he is a master craftsman. So when it comes to doing, I think he might be a Finnish carpenter, you know, uh, doing like the handwork on skis, which used to be a big deal. Nowadays, the handwork isn't as much because the CAD and the machining has evolved a lot. But back then it was a lot of cutting out carbon, sanding bevels, things like that. It was really craftsman work and he's the best. I love Chris, his brother, but Bob, even Chris would admit it, Bob's handiwork is unbelievable, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's impressive. That stuff's not easy to do. Will's pretty good, but Bob is the best at the handwork. So back then, there was a lot of like filing on bevels and things like that, uh, bondoing tails, making things wider. Uh, eventually, we figure out how to like heat skis and bend rockers and things like that. So Bob's the best. He still is the best at that. Um, <clears throat> so he would hand shape like a surfer would hand shape a blank. Bob would take a Monza and shape it into an A1. I mean, really, that's what the Monza is. Uh, it's really Bob's interpretation of what it should be. We had a Monza and he filed bevels on it. He bondoed a wider tail. And then I had, my role was <clears throat> to take that hand-shaped prototype from one turn it into CAD, cut a mold, and then mass produce it. That was my role in the beginning. I wasn't really designing skis um, in the big picture, but I had to take a, an object and turn it into numbers mm-hmm. and actually make it. So in a way, I was designing skis because Bob didn't really know like, okay, we're going to use a one-inch radius to get from the bottom bevel into the concave. He would just make it by hand, you know, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't really know. Oh, your bevel, the bevel size in the front of a slalom ski should be four hundred fifty thousandths of an inch in size, cord length. But he 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 could just file the bevel. So the rolls, as they turned out, were Bob made it by hand, and I uh, essentially figured out how to make it in CAD. And then Dave Robinson, who I still work with today, was our machinist, and he figured out how to machine the tools. And then once we had the mold, um, Bob was very influential in flex. You know, he knew what he liked in flex. He knew how to get there. He taught us kind of how to put material in different places. So that those were two Bob's roles, the hand shaping. And then once the mold was made, taking that ski, nailing the flex, or then once you got skis out of the mold, tuning it up, meaning going a little softer on the bottom bevel. At, you know, going a little sharper here, like really like kind of what Andy would do or, or Chris or Bob, you know, like tweaking it. Mm-hmm. What Will does a lot now, you know, t- taking it that extra three, four percent that gets you from three ball at 41 to six ball at 41, you know, the little hand details. That's what Bob did. 
Um, so yeah, that's kind of how our roles were and it worked out pretty good. The first ski we made together was a one and really popular and kind of set the trend for a lot of skis for the next number of years. And, um, yeah, it was a good team, team effort. It, actually, I'll got a funny story. The a one was made for parish, but unfortunately Chris left HO right before it came out. And Will got his hands on it. Will was going to stay in the Monza. That was our marketing pitch. Monza for Will. A1 for Parrish. Didn't work out like that. And then Will went on a tear. Didn't pretty much lose for a couple years after getting on the A1. So it's funny how your plans go out the window. But in the end, it all worked out. So... Now, staying with A1, because I, I know you, you told the story before of like, you know, cutting the mold with Chris and Bob and Bob getting cut and then oh, yeah. shitty ski, like wheel ran 39 and Moomba. Like um, you, you told that story to Marcus, but yeah, I guess the question I have for you and, and, and I have it as a, as, a, as a curiosity, as a nature skier, I have it from a different angles. We spent like so much has happened at HO since A1, but until a few years ago, everyone kept going back to that ski, whether primarily mentally, not necessarily in putting the, the bindings on an A1, but that mm-hmm. ski left something in, in the ski world, you know? Like if we were to make yeah. a top 10 skis that changed the industry, A1 is for sure there. Now, yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know, like what what I'm curious about is how long did that continue before it started bothering you, and if it ever oh, that's did. That's a good question. You know, it does bother me a little. If I'm going to be honest, yeah. Um, it's yeah. I mean, I I argue with people sometimes. Like the A1 is the best ski ever made, and I'm like, yeah, I don't even really like it, and they and I laugh. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, you guys made it. I'm like, yeah, but it's we've made way better stuff now. And I'm like literally having a conversation with people where they're so amped on the ski and I'm trying to talk them out of it. Yeah, we're the ones that made it. You know, it's right. funny, funny conversation. Um, I think maybe by the time we got to like A3 or V-types, which V-types, looking to be honest, people didn't really like my V-type skis very much, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so probably around the V-type era, if I'm going to be totally honest, when people were still talking about the A1 is when it started to get to me. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, we had a lot of success right out of the gate. Um, and then we didn't have success in a way for a while, uh, as much anyway. And so that's tough. But at the same time, we were we knew more about skis. So that's the interesting thing. It's like, just because you know a lot about ski design doesn't mean you always make the best ski, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think in the beginning we made, I think the A1 was, let's say the best ski in the industry at the time. Maybe the A3 was, then we had a bit of a lull where we didn't make stuff people liked as much. And then we came out the original pro. We maybe once again had a, had a, one of the best skis. And then I don't know, maybe now we'll see works one, after the weekend looks pretty promising for us. Right. But, um, so a couple times, maybe three times, maybe four, depending on who you ask in 15, 16 years, we've had the best ski in the, in the game. Um, so you don't nail it every time, but it's not like through that you forgot how to make skis in between. You just didn't quite nail the combination that the customer base finds like what they want, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, to go back to your original question, um, yeah, even to this day, people talk about the A1 and how great it was, and it bothers me a little, but I get it. You have nostalgia for skis. Yep. Just like I have nostalgia for a pair of vocal explosives I might have had in 1999, but to be honest, if you put bindings on them now and rode them, you'd be like, dude, these are terrible. Yeah, yeah. You know, So things change. In fact, I tell people to do that. I'm like, when's the last time you rode one? Uh, you know, I don't think it's as good as you remember, but right, right, yeah, yeah, no, that would yeah. be that would be my what I said to other people that told me that too. Um, so you mentioned, but I will say this, not to cut you off. What you do as a ski designer now is you look back on the A one and say, well, it actually was a good ski, but man, I wish I would have done this. Like the tail rocker is too flat. I'm like, why? What were we doing? The tail rocker is way too flat, and the flex pattern was way too stiff. So would the A one be? I can make it a lot better now. 
mm-hmm. I can make a better tail rocker. I can make it softer. I think it might be pretty good if you made those changes. Like you take what you've learned since then and you see where it short, where its shortcomings were. Yeah. So that's what keeps you going, you know? Yeah. 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 So sorry. Anyway, continue. No, no, yeah. no. I just wanted to say, but it's connected to this. Like at a point you said we had a lot of success with the A1 and the A3 and then so, so, and then we had a lot of success with the pro. What are you conceptualizing in terms of success? Is it buoys ran by pro team? Is it sales? Are the two things the same thing? What is success in, in your view? As you think back of the uh, that's, a, you made? that's a good question. I think it's a combination of both. Um, sales are a big part of it for me. Obviously that's how I'm graded. But to me, I'm a skier as well. So sales aren't the end-all be-all. And I'll often say, well, I think this ski will sell real well. Or I'll say, oh, I think this ski is really what the pros need to run 41. So those are those are different. I try and can put them all together. Meaning A1 sold, we sold a ton of A1s. And it was around the recession. And I've had dealers tell me, honestly, I'm not making this up. Had it not been for that ski, I think my business might have gone under. Because during a recession, when things were falling apart, this is like 2008, 2009, they sold so many of those skis that they they made it. That's cool. Pretty big dealers. Yeah, so, man, that's a feather in your cap. You know, it makes you feel good. And then you combine that with the fact that Will Asher went on to be the number one skier in the world during those times on that ski, and we had a ton of buzz on that ski. And one thing I always look back on is, like, when you went to the Pro Tour, and you went to that group of skiers below like the, the paid athletes, the Corey Vaughns at that time, and the, they were riding A1. So like that class of skiers trying to come up who could choose any ski they wanted, they were on it. Like there was a time when half the men's field was on A1. It was brief. Yeah. So I think that was what I would grade success. Uh, you know, business-wise, number one skier in the world-wise, and then... Um, high value customers or, you know, pros choosing it because it was straight up the best performing ski. So that's my, that's kind of what I look for. Yeah. Yeah. So like good skiers that didn't have any specific tie with a brand that said, okay, this, this is the ski I want to ski on. Yeah. That's a good one. I still think that. Yeah. Yeah. So plus it worked. Plus I was a skier and I rode it. I was like, man, this thing's good. You know, like that part of it too. I mean, it worked for me. It worked for most people we put on it. So yeah. I mean, I, I, I said this, my story several times of how like I got that ski gifted by Jay Bennett because I smashed my ski on the previous ski on a tree, yeah. you know, and it, I wasn't happy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and Jay gifted me that A1 and that, that changed my season and, and the subsequent years of my, of my skiing career. So uh, I was one of yeah. those like right below trying to make it that was yeah, you, skiing on a black I should have used you instead of Corey Vaughn, but I don't know. I, he popped in my mind, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, because we're going to talk about specifics of design uh, eventually, but I guess what were you keen on um, from, a, from a design and manufacturing perspectives as you were spending more and more years at HO, because Bob was in the picture. So you had this one person that had a lot of experience and could shape things. And your original mm-hmm. role was putting that thing into numbers and, and produce it. But it seems to me that your role kept evolving after that. Like you didn't stay the person that puts the thing into numbers and, and produces it. Like you started to understand more what what skills were you acquiring as you continued over the years? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think I heard this quote once kind of relates to it. It's like, you have to rebuild the ship while you're sailing. I think something like that, meaning you, you sail out of the Harbor and you'll say you're going to America. You have to keep building the ship as you go. Otherwise you're not going to make it. And so that's kind of like what I did. Like we just, every day we had a new, hurdle to tackle uh in the beginning was how do you make a ski then it was how you design a ski then how do you do it in cad how do you machine it how do you manufacture it how do you market it how do you sell it then you look at everything go where can we do better 
oh, let's make a 34-mile-an-hour ski. I had that idea early on. In the early days of HO, I actually came into HO with three ideas. I wanted to make a 36 and 34-mile-an-hour skis. I thought at the time, I was like, well, the pros are going 36. Everybody else is going 34. Why on earth don't we have a ski it for 36 and 34? This is like even before I started. So once I got in there and I had an opportunity to like do some stuff, that's what I wanted to do. So that's where A and S came from. Yep. A was the 36 mile an hour ski and the S skiers were the 34. That market, it went totally out the window, like all my plans, because in the end, Bedell ended up riding a A1 and Terry Winter at riding an S2. But um, they messed up my marketing pitch. But, uh, you know, so I had to pivot and say, well, maybe there's not 34 and 36 mile hour skis. Maybe there's skis for different types of skiers. And, and if you look back, HO, we were kind of the first in the modern era to offer two high-end skis. Now everybody does it. Now there's three high-end skis. But back then, we were kind of the first. So that was one idea. Uh, the other was I wanted to do a hard shell boot from the ground up, which we did with EXO, which, by the way, once again, wasn't hugely successful for us. But... It was a great learning experience. And then I wanted to do wake skis. I don't know if you guys remember wake skis, but it was oh, yeah. like taking the, the twin tip snow ski market and, uh, twins, what the, all the stuff going on in snow skiing and bring it to water skiing, which also didn't work real well. So I, I've had a lot of tries at stuff and only a few have succeeded, although they've done quite well, but I've, I've tried a lot of stuff. So anyway, back to your question of how, how did I, I mean, Part of it is during this recession, HO, we had some bad years. And I remember one year we, we didn't make money. I'm not going to say how much we lost, but it wasn't good. And so the ownership group made some changes. And they honestly took a chance and they got out, they, they, they got rid of some managers, high-level managers who were above me. And they gave myself and my friend Tommy Curtin an opportunity to run the brand. You know, I got to run the HO brand. And he got to run the Hyperlite brand. So essentially everything in the HO brand rolled up under me in terms of product design, manufacturing, marketing. And so when I got into that new role, well, I had a lot more things to do, a lot more things to manage. And that's when no longer did I like do CAD or, um, although I still understand that at a real high level, or do all the nuts and bolts of stuff I was doing in the beginning writing ad copy and stuff like that. And now I became to oversee more things. And then once you're in a role like that, where when you run a brand, you're running a business because really you're held responsible for revenue. You've got to manage expenses and you got to show profits to your ownership group. Um, then you just, you, you dude, you just evolve. You're like a rubber band, you know, every, you're just getting stretched in a million different ways and you got to figure out how to keep stretching and you know, people have different limits. And I just was pretty good at that. I could like kind of, roll with the punches and manage it. So that's still what I'm doing to this day, really. Yeah. So hopefully that help, helped explain kind of. Yeah. So that was like, what year was that changed? 2010, 11? Yeah, somewhere in there. Because the recession, I think it was 08, 09. So it might have been, might have been 09 or 10, maybe 11, somewhere in there. Kind of got to, uh, got promoted got to be from a product marketing manager to a brand manager. Yeah. And I mean, those are, it's hard to, what do those mean? I always tell people that I'm like, I try to explain, but really you, you, when you're a brand manager uh, and you have a brand like HO, it, it's a business. Like it, when you look at the financials of my company, we have the HO brand financials. So it's like having a business. Yeah. So that's kind of what I do now. Yeah. Thank you.